Get ready for Vancouver's premier real estate podcast. Your source for buying, selling, and investing in Vancouver's real estate market. With your hosts, two guys with faces for radio, Adam and Matt Scalina. Yeah, and we're live, and that intro is staying. I think we're we're good with it now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's growing on me. Actually, I think it's actually really growing on me. So I'm Adam Scalina, and I'm Matt Scalina, and you're listening to the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Yeah, welcome, and hopefully, welcome back. Now we've got a few episodes under our belt, so we're excited to be back. And uh, today we've got a fantastic interview yeah, for you. It is. I just finished listening to uh, the rough cut of that, and it was great. Yeah, we couldn't. We didn't have Matt with us for the interview, but uh, we did get a an amazing building inspector, Aaron Borsch, uh, on the phone line today, uh, which was great. Yeah, and he really uh, he really outlined a lot of issues that I think are are pertinent to home buyers, especially single family home buyers. And uh, hopefully we'll get them back to talk more about condos in the future. Yeah, exactly. And I think that Aaron was talking about the detached market today because what we've uh, what we've been hearing everywhere, and there's actually an article in the Globe and Mail today about the detached market, just how on fire it is, and also how a lot of people are buying homes with no uh, inspections. Really, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that wasn't really mentioned in the article, but the reality is they're talking about multiple offers. They're talking about just how busy it is, and, yeah. and what we're seeing is well, yeah. The just, fact is, is when a market goes up at a clip of twenty five percent in one year, you're seeing multiple offers. You're seeing people that are doing whatever it takes to win right. that bidding situation, and often that means going in subject free which means you're not getting inspection. So I think Aaron addresses that. And he's actually talking about some of the pitfalls looking at homes that are built before 1980. So today there was a Globe and Mail article. Um, oh yeah, talking, I saw that this morning. Yeah, talking about the Vancouver million dollar housing market. And it was actually, it was written by Brett Jang, but it was focusing on Andy Yan's work yeah, and, he's, uh, he's actually cited all over the place. He's he is. Kind of he's the go-to guy. Apart the from guy. us, apart from us, he's the go-to guy. Yeah, area. he's an urban planner. He works for the uh, Bing Tong Architects Group. Yeah, I think he's at SFU as well, the yeah. university here. Yeah, so he's he's kind of a big name in the uh, Vancouver real estate scene. And he's actually, what he's done now and what the article kind of focused on was he's developed this map that basically shows the pricing scale in Vancouver. So, for example, the west side of the city is predominantly green, and that means that houses are more than $2 million. And the east side is predominantly red, which means that houses are between about $1 to $2 million. And there's actually one part of the map that little slight areas where you'll see some blue, and that's for houses that are actually still under a million dollars, which is just out of curiosity. Where, where, yeah, where are those areas? Well, you know what? It's not about it's not about the area. What it is is basically there's three factors that he identifies for for a house that's under a million dollars. So one is a busy street. Two is a small lot, so something like a skinny lot or maybe a lot that doesn't have a lot of depth. Sure, so you're buying less dirt. Exactly. And the last thing is a sketchy history with the house. So like a grow up or... Yeah, a Breaking Bad house, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so 
it, it so what he does is he he breaks out that map and and then he talks about basically one of his findings which is that 91% of the 66,000 homes in Vancouver surveyed have been recently assessed in July at values of at least $1 million. Wait, okay. so this is July of 2015? Yeah. So what he's saying is that since then, we've obviously gone up at the minimum 10% across mm, the yeah, board. Easily, yeah. So he's saying that, you know, this is indicating that Vancouver is absolutely a, a million dollar housing city and also that it's shifted east. So what we're seeing is is values are increasing on the east side at a larger clip than at the west side. Yeah, which I think speaks to our general overview of 2015 and the general trend uh, more broadly. That- For sure that everyone is looking uh, east because that's where... You can still get in. And, and a lot of people think that there's still a lot of value, uh, especially when you contrast the price of you know the buy-in on the east side at 1.2 versus on the west side at 2.8. And if you're at all interested, if you, if you haven't listened to episode one, you should go back and listen to it because we kind of do talk about the stats and, and some of the factors that are driving this. Sure, sure. So, so there's a million-dollar club in Vancouver. Basically, anyone who owns a single-family home has in a house assessed at a million plus, is that right? right? And and then he makes the point that the housing pricing is shifting eastward, which we've already talked about. But the but the map really is something that's kind of interesting, and it's very clear where the most expensive homes are. And basically, the west side is covered in green. Uh, and the east side is covered in red, and the dividing line is basically Main Street. Right. Okay. So then, if there's a, if it's a million dollar club in in Vancouver, you know, and there's I think there's a show called Million Dollar Listing. We we were talking about this jokingly before, which we, neither, neither of us have neither watched. of us have ever seen. <laughs> yeah. But uh, my assumption of that is that. A million dollar listing is where they show these fantastic mansions. And I don't know if that's true though, oh, but okay. I, I mean, we, we, yeah, maybe. Regardless, I guess my point is, is that there's an assumption that a million dollar club uh, suggests the house is nice. The house is nice. <laughs> the house is new. Yeah, potentially the house is large. All well, of these assumptions would prove to be false uh, in Vancouver. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of nice houses. It, it depends how you define nice. I and mean, we're talking kind of in the one one point one million to one point seven million dollar range. Right? Well, we're not talking about these. Okay, so just give you to give you a sense on the east side, if you were going to buy a new house, you're looking at at least one point seven million dollars. So um, for brand new construction. Yes, yeah, so for brand new construction on the east side, if if you're basically looking at kind of the entry level, so say around 1.2 range, you're probably looking at a post-war bungalow, something that maybe has 800 so 19, 1950s 19, 1940s, 1950s, uh something that has maybe 800 square feet up, 800 square feet down, two bedrooms up, two bedrooms down, bathroom up, bathroom down, that right. sort of thing, potentially with a suite maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of house that you're basically looking at. You're looking at um, really something that's not really extravagant by any stretch, right? Right, right. And that's on a standard lot or maybe a smaller than standard lot. So so if you were advising a client looking at one of these post-war bungalows inspection? <laughs> well, well, this is just it. So part of the reason that we wanted Aaron to talk about inspections uh, and things to look for in houses that are, are built before 1980 is that the reality is is a lot of these homes that are being sold of the 66,000 in, in the Vancouver area are going to be pre-1980. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, well, well, quite a bit older. You know, obviously, there's going to be a lot of character homes. There's going to be a a mix of of homes built in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and then there'll be some newer houses built in you know the 70s and 80s. But what what's to watch for? Because in a market like this, you're seeing people do subject free offers. You're also seeing people take on renovations and try to do flips where they're making some money. So what are the potential pitfalls? Right, exactly. And and in those projects with flips, you know, hey, you walk into a house, everything's new, it's got gleaming appliances, you know, it looks really pretty. Yeah, new countertops, new paint, but, floors. But to the layman, it looks great. An inspector potentially is going to see... Well, at least an inspector is going to come in and say, yeah, you know what, it, it looks beautiful. And well, actually, they're probably not even going to comment on it aesthetically yeah but when they start looking around and 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 checking out the plumbing checking out the electrical looking at the exterior of the house and um you know the the drain tiles that sort of sure. thing you know there's a lot to find and there's a lot of well, cost. there's a lot of moving parts on a house and if you don't know what to look for you're gonna miss it and for sure you know we help people purchase homes all the time yeah. but we are not inspectors and you know what your father-in-law probably isn't either <laughs> are you referring to a client? I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, there's, no, no, there's no. No, that's a general father-in-law. These houses that were built before 1980 are all used properties, and I think they're. It's worth thinking about them like a used car. You know, right. you're, you're gonna find issues with every single one of these properties, and you have to go in. You know, context is king. You have to go in uh, with the assumption that there's going to be issues you find. And I don't think that that, you know, you want, you don't so want... wait. So if you had one piece of advice to give people when they were getting an inspection, what would you, how, how would you advise them? Like, what do you do to set your client up for an inspection if it's their first inspection? Well, what, what I do and what I think everyone should keep in mind is, is to, to put it in the context of the sale, you know, okay. how old is the house? Uh, right. what type of expectations should you have? What are reasonable expectations to have? Okay. Uh, you know, I think, I think that's key. And certain inspectors, you know, we've, we've been through inspections with a lot of inspectors. Certain inspectors help provide context better than others. And, you know... So you're saying some have better bedside manner. Exactly, exactly. And you know what? I, I say this to clients all the time, but if you turn down the, the volume on the TV in, during the horror movie... You know, it's not that scary. And some inspectors, they might as well have, uh, you know, the the Jaws music in in, in their backpack <laughs> with a speaker uh, yeah, to, to yeah. build suspense yeah. and uh, crush dreams. And you and and you know, meanwhile, they're finding the same things uh, that are reasonable uh, issues to find in a home that was built in 1953. I right. mean, and sometimes it's hard to watch because you, you're watching somebody crumble to the ground that, Oh, what they found in the house. And, and it's, it's, you know, these are reasonable things. These sure. are reasonable so, expectations. And, and to keep with your analogy about the cars, maybe it's the idea that, look, if I'm buying a 1982 Toyota Cressida or a Volkswagen Jetta, something along those lines, I can reasonably expect that I might have to do the brakes um, and maybe they've been yeah. done twice before I bought yeah, it. Yeah, they're, or, they're or at that f- it's leaking oil. But I'm also buying it at a at a certain price point and I, I recognize that it's not a brand new car. Adam, right? it's got 240,000 kilometers on it. <laughs> Anyways, enough about my car. So, <laughs> so, so, anyway. so anyway, what what? so I've given my, my piece of advice here is context is king. Uh, Adam, you got a piece of advice for everyone? 
If you can't get a subject to an inspection, do a pre-inspection. It's a small price to pay for certainty. So what I mean by that is if there's multiple offers on the property and they're looking at offers on Monday and there's you know going to be five, ten offers on the property, well, try to see if you can get in on the weekend and actually get an inspector through. And usually you can. Yeah, and usually you can. And usually the seller's agent or the, the seller will cooperate because, of course, they want you to come in. They, they want you to bring a subject for they, the offer. Yeah, hey, there's nothing... There's nothing more exciting to a, to a seller than to see a great offer without subjects. Exactly. Anyways, without further ado, here's our interview with Aaron Borsch. So I'm here with Aaron Borsch. How are you doing, Aaron? Pretty good, Adam. How are you doing this morning? Good, good. Did I get your last name right? Yeah, Borsch. 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 It's uh, German-based. German yeah, name. Kind of like Porsche. Kind of like Porsche, but, <laughs> but with a B. Right, right. So Aaron, you've done a ton of inspections for myself, my clients, my family. Um, what? How did How did you get into the business? Well, actually, it was a... Uh, I must have been must have been like six six years ago, seven years ago. Now I was actually looking uh, to to do some sort of uh, business on my own, uh, where I'm running things on myself. My background actually before that was finance. Um, okay. And then so an opportunity came along with a franchise called uh, Buyer Choice Home Inspections, and um, and it's something I I started to look into and pursued and. Uh, Decided to go for the certification and the courses, and then has been going on ever since. Wow! And one thing I know is, it, compared to a lot of inspectors out there, you seem to have a lot of certifications. I belong to an organization called Comanche, and I've been doing this long enough that I have a, uh, a certification called a Certified Master Home Inspector, which is the top designation that they have. And I also have am certified to use infrared cameras, and I'm actually going for a certification for air quality testing as well. Okay. So what is a home inspection? I made a definition here for a home inspection. I call it I call it an unbiased visual examination of property on a specific chosen day. Okay. So, and the reason I define it like that is is really um, as much as we like to see TV and homes on homes such and where they where they start ripping down walls and such. Um, uh, really, a home inspection is 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 a point in time of the property where where someone like myself, a home inspector, goes through on that same day and looks and and has a lot of equipment to test the home and 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 review the home but it's mostly visual which means we're not going to damage the property we can't we can't really pull something apart to look behind the right. walls and i think that's a key understanding right so so we we get a lot of information a home inspection um uh, uh, quite a bit and we have a lot of equipment a lot of experience to kind of put that information together in a report and but it is on a specific day we we go in and sometimes these closing days can be a couple months where an inspector comes in looks at it on a specific day and then possessions maybe two months later. Right, right. So a lot can happen in that two-month period. Mm-hmm. I know with my own home, a lot has happened in a two-month period. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed, a lot can happen. And and it's not only it's not only that. I mean, most homes will you know ninety five percent homes will be on the day that the inspection 
occur, will be the same on the day that the inspection occurred, right? So after two months, it's going to look exactly the same. But, you know, sometimes weather can be a big key factor, sometimes even just that simple. Right. And I, I, I think it's an important distinction that you make where a lot of people do watch these shows on reality TV of the inspector ripping open the walls. And obviously, we don't have that luxury. Exactly. So um, one of the things that keeps coming up, at least with clients of Matt and mine, is should I get a home inspection? And because this market has been so hot uh, these past couple months, a lot of people are, are in a position where they have to make a decision very quickly. And there are often several offers. So the subject to a home inspection is, is often a tough one to pass. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a good question because I think uh, just with the market situation, the way, the way it is this year, and well, last year, I should say, and it uh, seems to be this upcoming year as well, um, I've, I've done a lot of inspections where I've gone in and done the inspection before the offer is actually made. Okay. Obviously, there is a, there's a risk there of, of not winning the offer, but at least you get that peace of mind knowing the product that you're going to be purchasing. Right. So basically then the buyer... If they see the property, they know that offer presentation is, say, on Monday, they see it on the weekend, they try to get their inspector through before the offer presentation so they can waive that condition, basically. Exactly, where they they can possibly make that offer without that condition because they would have received the report already. And I, uh, for myself, I make sure inspector reports come out the very same day. And if I know that there is offer being made that day, um, I, I will do my best to ensure that report comes to my client before the offer is made. Right, right. That makes sense. And so you're seeing a lot of that then. You're doing a lot of kind of pre-inspections in this market. Quite a few. Yeah, quite a few. At least I'm I'm doing at least, uh, you know, at this point in time, once or twice a week wow. at, at, at minimum, it seems, right? And so it's, it's unbelievable because, you know, you think of these home inspections, they can they can range in price from you know, three, four hundred dollars, all the way up to a thousand dollars, depending the size mm-hmm. of the property. So these people are basically out of pocket just to ensure an opportunity to, to you know, to compete. Yes, unfortunately, that's kind of what the market's been dictating. If uh, to get a home inspection, that's kind of the kind of the risk risk we run. Um, if you know, if you find a good home and and, and the inspection, you're satisfied with the inspection report. Um, you know, the clients can perhaps make a very strong offer, but at least they know what they're getting apart from buying a property and not knowing what's coming along. And with the with with this type of market, right? There's so many properties, especially in the Vancouver area. They're they're kind of before 1980, and they come with a host of 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 things to be aware of. And and we always hope that property that gets purchased is is fine, and you know, no inspection may be necessary, and it comes out okay, but the reality is there's, you know, I see quite a few a year that are not like that, unfortunately. And a lot of times we don't find out till after the fact, unfortunately. As right. Well. So maybe we can actually touch on that. So what are some of the things to consider when buying a house that was built before 1980? Well, I think I think a good thing to understand is is the way that properties were built pre-1980 compared to the way the properties are built today or is very different. The building code was different. The, the strategy of, of building science was different. Right. And, and the thoughts around how buildings get built just are, lack of a better word, very different than they are today. Um, hence why we see even the layout and design is different. So, so 
if if you are buying a home pre nineteen eighty and depending on what you want to do, maybe you know maybe you want to flip it, maybe you want to live in it. Sometimes it dictates what you want to fix, and a lot it's very easy to see the cosmetic items. You know, if the the wall is damaged, you fix it. Right. right? So, but a lot of the non cosmetic items are, are the ones that usually sneak up on you. Um, and, uh, and and that's for example. Well, I was just going to say, and that's an interesting thing because I think a lot of buyers go in there and they they think, oh, a little bit of paint, maybe we'll do the floors, change out the appliances, and this is a great opportunity to make some money. Yeah, yeah, and and then you know, and that may you know that may work, but and and to some extent, where a property may show a lot better, if you purchase a property with the intention to flip, and you want to flip it within sixty days, and you want you know fix the walls, replace the appliances, um, and, and then you put it on the market right away again, it may sell better and and faster and such too as well. But I would think that whoever this buyer of your property that you're trying to flip may also get a home inspection as well. <laughs> right. and, uh, hopefully they will. And some of these things can actually come along again, right? So it's not exactly something you can ignore all the time and stuff too as well. And 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 there are certain things. So I'll give an example. Um, older, quite a bit older properties, um, let's say 1950, 1940, that area. Two things that typically come up is... Uh, either 60 amp service, which is part of the electrical system. So um, an amperage is the amount of power that flows into a property. And most properties nowadays have 100 amps, but older properties only had 60 amps. Um, so obviously, you know, less. Um, uh, and what actually happens with 60 amps is insurance companies don't actually, not many insurance companies that I'm aware of, insure properties with 60 amps. So it's really hard to get property insurance. So it's something usually I recommend to try to get fixed right away. So why why would an insurance company have an issue with 60 amp? I, I think it's not so much the 60 amp service itself because all you have is less power. But what it implies um, a lot with an older product, 60 amp service, it usually implies it also has something called knob and tube wiring, perhaps, which is an older style of electrical infrastructure. Um, and they actually, uh, you know, they're typically knob tube wirings don't have a grounding system. So, so if electrical surge is such a lightning strikes, there's no protection. Um, and there's also just old wires are so typically brittle and they tend to, tend to be, uh, hazardous in terms of fire and such too, as well. Right. So it's sometimes the 60 amp service more symbolic of a, of a larger issue of the electrical system for buyers. I would almost, I mean, you know, ultimately I would recommend a home inspection, but it's never inappropriate to ask a few questions too. Uh, and hopefully you can get some answers such as like, you know, has electrical system been updated or, you know, a simple question like that can get you a lot of information. Okay. So we've covered kind of electrical. What would be another example? Um, uh, plumbing, plumbing would be a great example. Um, it seems that over time, if you're buying a property, most properties are, modified in some way or changed and so forth and therefore whatever the property might have built have been built to look like originally definitely doesn't look like it today and a lot of that includes is sometimes plumbing so I've, I've gone in inspections on older properties and seen like plumbing drain lines installed upside down where it doesn't drain or strange leaking or sometimes just old plumbing lines um, and some of these old plumbing lines um, need to be fixed up and they're hard to see because typically they're inside walls um, even everyone talks about uh, different material, but even copper over time wear out and create pinhole leaks due to joints and such, and, and they need to be fixed up. And that can be a really expensive job, I guess, to 
to replumb the house. Yeah, it can. And, and people forget it's not only just plumbing the house and adding the water lines. When you do plumbing, it's, it's also tearing open the wall to even get access to the plumbing lines, which actually adds more of an expense. So as you well. have to re drywall, paint. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, I got to put it back the way it looked before, right? So, and sometimes these things don't start to leak until they start to get used some so so it's something that you know as home inspectors we again we have a lot of equipment and we come along we test and we run faucets for quite a bit of time um and uh see if anything gets generated but there still has to be some awareness old plumbing lines can be brittle. right okay so we've talked we've kind of covered some of the issues with uh, pre-1980s homes uh any more that you can talk mm-hmm. about yeah of course i mean maybe we can talk about one of the big ones uh, that always gets asked if you're if you're buying a home pre-1965 uh and and you're going in in this market we're trying to make a subject free offer i get asked a lot about oil tanks okay um oil tanks seems to be uh is a pretty big one they they can be very expensive and and they can be expensive over time and maybe i should ex- explain what they are first right so uh Pre-1965, it was popular to use as a fuel source for heating underground oil tanks. And what they did is they buried these oil tanks under under the earth near the property somewhere. Obviously, this is not used today, but there's many properties that left these underground oil tanks inside the ground. And over time, uh, what might have happened is these oil tanks... Obviously, they start to leak their contents into the earth or and so forth, and they start to contaminate the earth. And this is where we come along to today. When these oil tanks are discovered, a lot of the contamination can be discovered as well. And that can be a costly cleanup, depending how bad the contamination is. When buying a property pre-1965, it's a very good question to ask, is, is there an oil tank? Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam. It's all, it needs to be disclosed usually on a in a document called the Property Condition Disclosure Statement. Um, there is actually a question regarding oil tanks, and so if the seller is aware, they do need to disclose the fact that there is an oil tank on the property. The challenge is that there's many sellers that are not aware, and what needs to be done is is an oil tank scan often. And basically, exactly. someone comes out to the property, they, they've got their um, technical gear, and they basically scan, scan the property for a tank. Um, in fact, we've actually found about, I think, three in 2015, I think three separate properties that I was um, dealing with actually had tanks on the property. Fortunately, they weren't huge, um, huge costs for remediation. They were still expensive. I mean, we're under five thousand dollars however mm, lucky very lucky. lucky however the issue is from my understanding is if it, if it does leak on your property well you do have to obviously make sure that um, it's brought up to code um, based on the provincial legislation the environmental legislation but if it actually goes to your neighboring property but it it originated on your property well then it's you're at fault it's uh, so it is a big liability issue exactly exactly and that's exactly what i was going to say like this is where it kind of can kind of chain react into cost um last year i saw a uh, uh, oil tank remediation it was eighty thousand dollars it was actually a full oil tank inside wow. the earth that hadn't been emptied at all and this is why these things can be can be very important so so for buyers buying properties and generally pre-1965 1970 is worth ask the question is is there an oil tank um clients may disclose no or they don't know the big the big i don't know is actually the the more important part because if they don't know then then it's pretty uh prudent to 
at least try to get oil tank scan in, even with this type of market, if you can get in, same as same as inspectors to try to get it in and get done before the offer gets made, um, you're just saving yourself uh, uh, some more peace of mind right there too as well. As home inspectors, we actually aren't certified to do the actual oil tank scan. Like, So I'm familiar with with signs of what an oil tank may look like. And I have caught several oil tanks just from those physical signs, but they can actually be hidden deep in the earth. And then you need someone to come along with specialized equipment like metal scanners and stuff too, to actually start detecting these oil tanks. As right. Well. And I see that they're even taking it a step further now and, and it costs more money, but you can actually get a geothermal scan of the earth as well. You can, you can, right. you can, right? So, um, and for the cost of it, usually I recommend take, take the best package you can to make sure, right? Because you just don't, it's a good idea not to have this this sort of situation hanging over. Great. Okay. So oil tanks is, is a huge one. Any other ones that you want to talk about? Yeah. Yeah. I do also get asked a lot about asbestos actually, um, which is also another big word that gets tossed around too. And and um, maybe I'll talk a little bit about what asbestos is and sure. stuff too, even though there's a lot of, lot of coverage out there. But um, asbestos is a, is a mineral that um, when it is breathed in and gets into the lungs of people, it can cause mesothelioma, which is uh, which is a disease that usually affects you quite a bit later in time. Um, and that's why it's so dangerous. And the reason it's so prevalent is before uh, 1980, it was used pretty liberally in construction material. Um, and it was after 1980 that it was banned from residential construction, and I use that keyword, residential construction. Uh, but even though it was banned in 1980 for, in residential construction, there was some material that still leached into the construction of houses, that even up to 1985, and I even heard even up to 1990 in some rare cases too as well. So um, the reason I bring this up is obviously when you're buying a older property, I get asked a lot of questions is, is there asbestos? So to answer that, some material, it's very familiar that it may contain some degree of asbestos. And uh, examples would be vermiculite. Um, it's a type of stone that was used to insulate attics. It was mined beside a asbestos mine, so it was known to contain low levels of asbestos. And usually it's contained in the attic. Kind of looks like kitty litter a little bit. Um, another example would be um, uh, duct tape. Uh, used on insulating furnace ducts, okay. they were known to contain high levels of asbestos. But uh, but there are also a lot of materials that don't look like that they contain asbestos at all because they use asbestos in a lot of different things, So such as drywall. They might have used asbestos as drywall. They sometimes use asbestos in exterior construction material, used it in roofing, used it in paint. They, they used it in everything. Wow. So the reason I bring this up is uh, asbestos is really only dangerous when it becomes airborne. That's the other key part. So if you're the asbestos, the suspected area having asbestos is no way to become airborne. Usually it's pretty inert mm-hmm. and there's not, there's nothing you have to do. So if it's in the attic, you don't have to do anything, just leave it up there. But if buying a property, if you're thinking about renovating it, you're going to be tearing down walls and it may become airborne. That's where you do need to get it tested. And that's a cost that you have to understand and and uh, and build into your estimation that if you're thinking about flipping, renovating, whatever it might be, a test may be proven to do. And you may have to do removal as well, depending on the area that you're thinking of renovating. Right. And and removal and remediation can be a huge cost. I, I know clients of mine that... Um, you know, have when they go to sell their home, you know, I ask if there's always if there's vermiculite in the attic, which is a big one. And, um, 
you know, if there is, we have to disclose that. And, and that can be a, obviously mm-hmm. a, a big challenge for the sale of the home. So people have, I've seen people over time have remediation jobs for houses that are not very large for vermiculite in the attic. And you, it, it can easily yeah. be $9,000, $10,000, um, Easily. 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 So, you yeah. know, it's a huge yeah. cost. And I've also seen buyers, you know, find out later on when they're actually demoing a house that, you know what, there was asbestos in the tile or the paint. And, uh, and obviously, you know, you have to not only remediate, but you have to dispose of it. And I know that in, in BC now, there's been tighter regulations on disposal of asbestos lately as well. So. Yeah, there is, right? I call it the bagging of the house. The house looks like it has a giant bag on the outside. You know, it's going through asbestos <laughs> right. removal if you drive drive by something like that, right? So, so and and you and you're exactly right, right? So I think and really, if if you're planning on going on the house and and not doing any renovations, then it's going to be fine, most likely, as long as it's not in any in any space that's going to become airborne. It's really the key. Is if you're thinking about renovating, then then that's where the cost starts to be to firm remediation starts to come into play. And a lot of contractors are finding now that if they know that they're going to be renovating a property pre-1980, they may build that test cost into their estimation, but it is still whoever's going to be remediating your house to ask that question. If you're good, if, if you have clients that, or, or buyers out there that are planning on remediating their own house, I would highly encourage them getting a test as well. Right. Uh, I'll talk about some of the structural modifications I see too as well. And, and the reason I bring up structural modifications is over time, again, a property gets modified to fit different spaces in and such. And, and what I see have seen on occasion is where they start to modify the structure. Okay. So they start to cut notches into the into the joists or or they they change the way the house is laid out and such too as well so a lot of these things um the reason i bring it up is is at the very end of the day everything can be fixed for a cost it's just a matter of what that cost is going to look like right so uh, a lot of people ask me like is 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 this something that we can't deal with and i my answer is always like well you can deal with anything Right. Anything can be fixed. It's just how much money are you willing to put into it? And I think and the reason I bring that up is is, um, you know, a good key question when you buy a property that is that is aged, you know, pre 1980 is there is going to be a cost to fix what that cost looks like. So we don't know. But it's a good idea to have some sort of reserve ready to go because likely there's going to be something you have to fix. Oh, it seems to be every time. Well, and you think about these houses, it's it's mind-boggling because you got a house that's, you know, going to sell for say 1.4 million dollars. So these buyers want to come mm-hmm. up with maybe 20% down to avoid paying the CMHC insurance. And now they move into the house and they got to deal with asbestos, they got to deal with structural defects, they have to deal with plumbing. There there could be a whole host of challenges, right? So it can be a very expensive process. It, it can it can be yeah so so my recommendation to to buyers is have a contingency ready to go for repairs right it always seems to come up the case and from my experience there's always something whether it's structural weird wiring that needs to be fixed there was a uh, one property I saw that um that uh that the furnace the flue for the furnace which is the 
the the chimney part that goes to the outside. So all the exhaust goes on the outside. It had been uncapped and modified, so the exhaust was coming into the property and house and such too as well. So these things seemed, you know, over time houses always get kind of changed around. But you want to you want to be kind of ready for yeah, it. Yeah, and expect that, especially in East Vancouver, where where I sell a lot of homes, often the person who has made the modifications wasn't qualified to do so. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of times, a lot of times it does come up, right? Or or and and I get also ask questions about permits and such too right so as their permits done and and something else i want to point out inspectors we don't have the ability to to look at permits they we so we wouldn't we wouldn't know if there was permits done or not but we can tell if it's done properly or not properly or 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 amateurishly or or not right, right? so you're so. you're getting a professional opinion that you know something was maybe done to code versus you know something like spaghetti wiring or yeah, exactly. Exactly. Spaghetti wiring is a good description. I see. I see plenty of those. That's for sure. So, <laughs> I bet. so, um, so, or something other quirky sort of, sort of trait that comes along, right? So, so how can people get a hold of you, Aaron? Uh, best way to get a hold of me is you can actually contact me through my website, which is uh, tricity dot dot com. Or anyone's welcome to give me a call at six zero four eight eight zero zero eight one eight. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks, Ed. So there you have it, folks, our interview with Aaron Borsch. I learned a lot. Did you? Yeah, no, I think, hey, Aaron, anytime you can pick Aaron's brain for for a little bit, it's... it's, uh, He did highlight kind of the big considerations when you're buying a house built before 1980 for sure next next week on the podcast we're gonna have aaron back to talk about the stock market <laughs> are you making a joke about that he was in I finance did not know, did not know that about I aaron. Know. that's uh i that's, feel like i learned something I, I feel i felt like he was throwing us for a loop there but anyways <laughs> Okay, well, thanks for listening. And you can yeah. always find us online at www.scalinarealestate.com. And yeah, Matt, come check us out there. How can they reach you on, uh, on hey, the phone? Well, you can reach me at matt at scalinarealestate.com or at 778-847-2854. You can uh, reach me at adam at scalinarealestate.com or 778-866-4574. And if you don't want to make a decision... Info at scalinarealestate.com. Yeah, uh, it goes to both of us, so <laughs> we'll decide who you get. Anyways, uh, and also the last thing we'll say is please oh, yeah. do rate us on iTunes. Uh, it's it's huge. We want to keep this going. We want yeah. to grow it as much as we can. Yeah, we want, we want as many people to find out about it uh, as possible. As possible. So if you like the podcast, rate it. If you don't like the podcast, well... Throw your computer and smartphone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Well, we'll see you next week, and thanks for listening. This has been the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast with Adam and Matt Scalina. Contact us anytime at 778-866-4574 or 778-847-2854 or online at www.scalinarealestate.com. Subscribe today.